Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, with the celebration of the baptism of the Lord, the church concluded its celebration of the Christmas season and thereafter entered into the liturgical season known as ordinary time. Consequently, it's worth briefly reminding ourselves that the name for this liturgical season can be a bit misleading. As I have discussed in the past, when it comes to living the Christian life, there really is no such thing as ordinary time. For Christians, there is no such time when we can just hit the cruise control and go through the motions. Rather, the whole of our lives must be a continual striving to grow in relationship with God through, with, and in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, I have spoken of the difference between the season of ordinary time and the other liturgical seasons, Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter, by using the analogy of a relationship In any relationship, there will be moments of peak intensity, where one's love for the other is especially ardent or put to the test. For example, moments of disagreement, sadness, and illness that can challenge the relationship. We can liken these moments to the seasons of Lent and Advent, when we are challenged to cooperate with God's grace so as to purify our love for Him through acts of penance. In contrast, there are other times when one's love reaches such joyous levels that loving the other seems as natural as breathing. We might liken these times in a relationship to the liturgical seasons of Christmas and Easter. Still, there will be other spans of time where the relationship passes through more placid periods, where love is more easily maintained and cultivated. In these periods, we may liken to the liturgical season of ordinary time. Nevertheless, as any couple will tell you, the more placid periods is where the real work gets put in and the basis for growth is cultivated. Without continual cultivation and maintenance in the day-to-day, any difficult period will threaten the existence of the relationship, and any joyous period will be less enjoyable or even unattainable. Thus, far from ordinary in the sense popularly used, The liturgical season of ordinary time presents us with the opportunity to continually examine and cultivate our relationship with God. It is the time of putting in the real work that will enable us to enter more deeply into the intense seasons to come, such as the season of Lent, which will begin in several short weeks from now. Thus, over the next couple of Sundays, our readings will get us back to the basics, reminding us of who we are and what we have been created for, now that the intensely joyful season of Christmas has concluded. The very unordinary nature of ordinary time is made obvious by our readings for today, which together present us with two very challenging but extremely important spiritual lessons. We can get at this most quickly and directly by looking at our second reading for today from chapter 6 of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Our passage comes within the section of this letter which deals with moral issues. Previously, St. Paul has taken up the issues of incest and legal disputes and has turned now to consider sexual morality and, more specifically, 
prostitution. And it becomes clear very quickly that from the Christian perspective, there is no such thing as sheer morality. Now, to be sure, St. Paul is here discussing an issue that many people, Christian or non-Christian, religious or non-religious, would consider wrong or immoral. But St. Paul has little interest in moralizing. We don't hear him say anything like, prostitution is wrong because it entails taking advantage of another, oftentimes someone who is selling their body because they have no other option. Such a claim would certainly have moral force and is an important consideration if we were speaking, say, on a philosophical plane. However, St. Paul stays firmly on a theological plane in discussing this issue. Why is prostitution wrong for Christians? Because the Christian, in his or her entirety, body and soul, belongs to Christ. In verse 15, St. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In verses omitted from today's selection, Paul continues using an analogy of marriage, writing, Do you not know that anyone who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For the two, St. Paul writes, citing Genesis 2, verse 24, will become one flesh. Next he adds, Whoever is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul then explains, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Having received the sacrament of baptism, Christians have been united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the bond of divine love, who gives us a share in the life of God through, with, and in the incarnate Son, just as married individuals share one life. Consequently, as their name suggests, Christians, meaning little Christs, are to leave all else behind, forsake all others, if you will, and live the life of Christ. And here comes the punchline, fellow sinners. Paul tells us very simply, you are not your own. You are not your own. This is the first of two central spiritual lessons we learn today. You are not your own. Rather, St. Paul quickly adds, for you have been purchased at a price. The price St. Paul refers to is the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ who offered himself to the Heavenly Father to save us from sin and thereby enable us to offer ourselves together with him to the Heavenly Father by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. Thus, St. Paul says in conclusion, glorify God in your body. St. Paul is clearly not operating within the realm of my body, my choice here. It doesn't even appear on his radar. Rather, what we do within our souls and what we do in bodily action, in short, what we do with the whole of our lives, belongs to and is meant to express our union with Christ and is therefore to be lived for the glory of God, just as he lived to glorify the Heavenly Father. Further on in chapter 10 of his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul makes this even clearer, writing, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Paul echoes his teaching here in his letter to the Romans when he writes, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. As human creatures, we are taught this Sunday, we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. What Paul is expressing here touches on the nature of the human creature. For what Paul is describing here in terms of our salvation holds true in terms of our creation and created existence. In the theology of the Church Fathers, one often finds the understanding that creation and salvation operate according to the same dynamics. Put simply, we can say that just as we could not save ourselves, neither could we create ourselves. Thus, when Paul says, You are not your own and have been purchased with a price, 
we ought not understand it transactionally. Rather, the price the Son of God paid for our lives, he paid so that the possibility of living according to our created purpose, the possibility of living life to its full, might once again be made available to human creatures, individually and collectively. While the sacrifice of the cross makes clear that salvation has been given and not earned, it also reveals that human existence is sheer gift, for we could do nothing to merit being created either. This latter point is obvious, as before we were created, we didn't even exist so as to be able to merit anything at all. Let's go one step further. St. Paul has already reminded us that by virtue of Christ's salvific action, the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts and united us to the life of Christ, making us members of his body. Therein lies our salvation. To be saved means nothing less than to be made partakers of the divine life, through, with, and in the Son of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, salvation is participatory, for one can only be saved by participating in the life of Christ. Once again, this holds true of human life simply. We have no existence of our own. No single human creature is self-created in absolute terms, nor can any human creature create another human creature in absolute terms. Only God exists by necessity and absolutely in God's self, and therefore, only God can give a share of his existence so that others might exist. This is what creation is, and all creatures, including the human creature, exist accordingly, by participating in the life that is God. This God did, St. John tells us in his famous prologue, through the eternal word, through whom all things came to be and without whom nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life. Thus, to say that we do not belong to ourselves is an ontological statement. It says something very basic and central about human life. We cannot exist on our own. Therefore, we must live so as to remain united to the source of life, the living God. For failure to do so leads to self-destruction. I understand that all of this may seem a bit of theological minutia. However, I assure you it is not. It is absolutely vital that we recapture the central teaching of the Christian faith today when so many believe that life is a project of self-creation wherein one is to determine one's own identity and purpose. This tenet of our faith, that we are in fact creatures, reminds us that we are not self-creators, nor are we to determine our own identities. Rather, we have been created on purpose with a purpose. We have been created by a loving God who gives each of us with a completely unique and unrepeatable identity. Human life, the side of eternity in large part, is about discovering the identities we have each been given. This reality is made clear, if only but briefly, at the end of our gospel reading for today. There we find Andrew bringing his brother Simon to Jesus. We are told, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. In chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, which comes from the Latin Petrus, meaning rock, he adds, And upon this rock I will build my church. The eternal word of God, through whom all things were made, including Simon, now become incarnate, looks at Simon and tells him exactly who he is, who he has been created to be. Peter. In this moment, Jesus reveals Peter's identity to Peter, 
and does so by simultaneously revealing his purpose, the mission with which he has been created. Now notice, only by looking at Jesus, at the face of the living God, and by following Jesus and seeing how Jesus lives, as Jesus had just told the other disciples to do, will this ever make sense to Peter? At this moment, Peter must be thinking, Peter? Church? Rock? What on earth are you talking about? Only by living a life of discipleship, by following and imitating the Word of God incarnate, will Peter discover what this means, and therefore discover his identity. So too with every single human creature. When we try to do otherwise and forge our own identity, we human creatures put our happiness ever further out of reach, destine ourselves to a restless life, and in some cases, experience devastating despair which we see playing itself out on a massive scale today as multitudes try to find happiness on their own terms apart from God. This fact of human life also plays itself out in more complex detail in our first reading for today from chapter 3 of the first book of Samuel. It is the famous story of the call of the young prophet Samuel. Our passage begins by telling us that Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. This is an important detail as it sets the context for what happens next. The Ark of the Covenant signified the presence of God for the people of Israel. Indeed, in some sense, it contained the very presence of God and made God present to the people. Thus, by telling us that Samuel was sleeping where the Ark was, Scripture both relates to us a literal detail, that this is where Samuel was sleeping, but also a deeper spiritual meaning. Samuel is close to God, resting in God's presence. And more to it, God's presence is where Samuel abides, and thus, he is in position for what happens next. In verse 4, we are told, The Lord called to Samuel. Thinking it was his caretaker and mentor, the judge and priest of Israel, Eli, Samuel runs to him and says, Here I am. Eli, asleep and likely confused, says, I did not call you. Go back to sleep. This happened several times, with the sacred author interjecting to tell us that Samuel did not yet recognize the Lord, since the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so, after the Lord calls to Samuel for a third time, it is Eli who figures out what is going on and tells the youth, Go to sleep, and if you are called, reply, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so it happens. God calls the youth, Samuel, Samuel. And the young prophet promptly answers as instructed, Speak, for your servant is listening. Once again, there is more being related to us here than what the literal meaning conveys. Notice, please, it is nighttime. A time of darkness and nothingness. Symbolic of the moments just before the creation of the world, when God speaks and calls all into existence from nothing. And it is at this time when God calls Samuel by name, as if calling the youth into the existence for which he was created, to be a great prophet and judge for the people of Israel. And Samuel responds with docility to the voice of his creator. Just as God rhetorically asked Job concerning the lightning, Can you send forth the lightnings on their way, so that they say to you, Here we are? And only because Samuel obediently responds to the voice of his creator is he able to live out his created purpose and accomplish great things for God and his people. The passage we hear this Sunday then jumps from verse 10 to verse 19, which reads, Samuel grew up, and the Lord was with him, not permitting any word of his to go unfulfilled. 
And in the following verse 20, we are told that all Israel came to know that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The prophetic identity God gave to Samuel was great indeed. Yet, as with many of the saints, living out his created purpose would be difficult. And this from the very start. For the first task God calls the young prophet to is to relay a message from him to the youth's caretaker, the judge and priest Eli, that God would soon carry out destruction upon his house for their crimes. If all we knew of Eli came from this short episode, his reaction would be puzzling. After hearing what God had to say to him through Samuel, Eli says, It is the Lord. What is pleasing in the Lord's sight, the Lord will do. Eli's reaction here is reminiscent of Job's, who after experiencing the destruction of his household, simply says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though scripture does not relate it, Eli too had once been called by God for the special task of being judge over the people of Israel, which he was for 40 years. But somewhere along the way, Eli began placing other things before God and lost himself in the process. Instead of placing God above all else, he goes easy on his sons when he learns of their wickedness, their reckless and gluttonous consumption of the sacrificial meats and their promiscuity. Thus, together with his sons, Eli becomes estranged from God, and their story ends in destruction, just as young Samuel had related to the aged judge. Hearing of the death of his sons and that the ark had been captured in battle, Eli falls backward in his chair and dies of a broken neck. Once again, in addition to the literal meaning conveyed by the scriptural account, we have a deeper spiritual meaning, which conveys the inverse of our first lesson for today. If the human creature does not belong to itself, but finds its identity by living in relationship with God, as Samuel and Peter after him, the human creature experiences destruction and loses itself by falling out of relationship with God. In his confessions, St. Augustine tells us that he too experienced such destruction by allowing things other than God to take priority in his life. At the opening of Book 2, Augustine writes, I will try now to give a coherent account of my disintegrated self. For when I turned away from you, the one God, and pursued a multitude of things, I went to pieces. Apart from the God who alone exists, the human creature disintegrates and falls back toward the nothingness from which it was called. My friends, this weekend as we enter into the season of ordinary time, we are invited to get back to the basics. And so today, we learn one of the most basic yet most vital lessons of all. We are not our own. Rather, we belong to the Creator who called us into existence and who alone can give our life purpose and meaning. As creatures, our existence is participatory. We have no life of our own. And thus to try and live as if we do can never be satisfying, can never lead to happiness. This is what we learn from the story of Samuel and Eli. Today we are surrounded by Elis, people who allow all sorts of things to come between themselves and God. Ego, money, career, relationships, material goods, what have you. And thus not only struggle to find meaning and purpose in their lives, but experience destruction of all stripes. As Christians, just as Samuel, we are called to courageously respond to God's call, to his plan and purpose for our lives, so that we might show the world that true fulfillment and joy can only be found one way, abiding in the presence of the God to whom we belong.
Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.